Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Richard Schultz will join us to discuss Task Force 714. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the art of warfare in the new millennia is entirely based on information age technologies. And how does the military adapt to these new threats? Joining us today to discuss one such effort is Dr. Richard H. Schultz. Dr. Schultz is the Lee E. Dirks Professor of International Politics and the Director of International Security Studies Program at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He is the author of several books, including The Marines Take Anbar, The Four-Year Fight Against Al-Qaeda, and Insurgents, Terrorists, and Militias, The Warriors of Contemporary Combat. He has penned the new book, Transforming U.S. Intelligence for Irregular War, Task Force 714 in Iraq. And he joins us today to discuss this for a general audience. Dr. Schultz, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, this is really fascinating accounting of Task Force 714 in Iraq and really the lessons that it tells us about modern warfare in many ways. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Yeah, although I'm an academic, I'm a bit of an unusual one in that I worked closely over the years with special operations forces. And so I was quite aware of Task Force 714 and the challenges in Iraq. So I initially did a monograph for the Special Operations Command. And that led me to the idea that I wanted to do a fuller study, a full book on the subject. And then actually this book has led to more recent work on how artificial intelligence is being used by those who have followed Task Force 714. For those people who don't know about Task Force 714, if you can explain a little bit about what it was, the circumstances in which it was formed, and what its real mission was. Yeah, so Task Force 714 is part of what's called the Joint Special Operations Command, also known as JSOC, which some of your listeners may know. JSOC is made up of Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, and other units like that. And they have had the classic counterterrorism mission, but their mission was in peacetime. So they were an element of it, which was a task force, was sent to Iraq to deal with the problem of al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda in Iraq and its leader, Zarqawi. And the task force was headed by the person who was the commander of JSOC at the time, rather famous now, named Stanley McChrystal. So the job of the task force was to dismantle al-Qaeda in Iraq secret units or their secret underground, which was responsible by 2004 for greatly escalating the war in Iraq. So it was al-Qaeda in Iraq was a real challenge. And JSOC was picked to meet that challenge. They were part of the larger force 
but their job was to zero in on al-Qaeda in Iraq's organization, their leadership, their unit, and so on. Posed a major challenge, al-Qaeda in Iraq, not a state agency, and isolated in cells. How did Task Force 714 begin to adapt to this irregular warfare, as you put it? Yeah, well, they they faced a real problem in that they never had trained to deal with an organization that was networked virtually. The al-Qaeda in Iraq really took advantage of the information age. So their organization was not just an underground, it was a networked organization that was all over Iraq. So Task Force 714 wasn't geared for that. So they had to figure out how they had to change themselves in order to deal with this this threat. And that led them to build a whole new organization that was based on employing large amounts of intelligence that they were collecting on night raids. Problem in any organization is revamping an organizational structure to deal with new elements. And this is the story of a book. What was the process by which they transformed themselves and how did they transform and what what eventually did they transform themselves into that allowed them to be so effective at targeting al-Qaeda in Iraq? Well, first of all, they realized that they had to reorganize themselves. So JSOC was considered the best in the world counterterrorism force. So initially, they thought that, well, all we have to do is double down and, and, and work harder. But it wasn't enough. The way they were organized wasn't appropriate. So essentially, they were an organization in which 80% of their effort was geared towards operations and 20% towards exploiting intelligence that they would collect on operations. And they had to turn that on its head so that 80 to 90% of what they did was collecting and exploiting information to drive operations. Now, that was a big change. And they needed, and they had very good leadership that recognized that and rebuilt the organization to do that. Now, what happened was then, so they were at their peak carrying out 300 night raids a month. So on a night raid, they would have a target, you know, maybe a financier in his network and maybe a IED factory commander in his organization. They would attack it. And after they took control of it, then they would pick up everything that they could find in there, computers, laptops, hard drives, cell phones, thumb drives, etc. And they would bring all of that material back to headquarters. Now, imagine 300 of those in a month. How are you going to process all that intelligence? So they had to build a whole new infrastructure that could exploit all of that intelligence, put it into usable systems in which analysts could then employ it to plan operations. Uh, They also used it as information for conducting interrogation. So it was a complete revamp. But they had to de- they had to depend on new technology. See, here's so they had to learn about and contract with data management organizations that had the computer platforms and, and systems in which all of this information could be homogenized and integrated so it could be exploited. So that was revolutionary. They were the first organization to face the big data problem. 
You had all this information coming in. There was the intelligent collection, the analysis, and then disseminating that information so that everybody could act on it. The goal was that all this information would be readily available to everyone at any time. How was that set up so that all that information could be acted upon in, in the most efficient way? See, so they rebuilt their organization in Iraq, but they needed help from the other intelligence agencies. You know, in intelligence agencies then we're still not good at sharing. Remember, that was one of the big lessons from 9-11. We didn't share the intelligence organizations, had all the information, but they didn't share it to figure out the 9-11 plots. So they had to have cooperation from CIA, DIA, all of what Admiral McRaven, Bill McRaven, who was the deputy commander of Task Force 714, so McChrystal famous, was the commander. And Bill McRaven, also you know, quite well known, was the deputy commander. They had to build a what was called a joint interagency intelligence task force and get cooperation from all of the three-letter agencies, to include FBI, and to have those agencies deploy personnel to Iraq to work in the Task Force 714 headquarters, and then to to make all of that intelligence, they're not just usable to Task Force 714, but to send it back to their home agencies. So this was quite a an interesting system that McChrystal and McRaven built for intelligence, but they needed the help of all of the three-letter agencies, which they were able to get because they had raw intelligence that no one else had on al-Qaeda in Iraq, but al-Qaeda in Iraq was networked into al-Qaeda global. So this was very interesting for these other agencies. Breaking down a lot of these barriers between agencies being siloed in many ways, suffering from their own institutional inertia, not really sharing that information, it was uh, overcoming a lot of those to build this kind of network. Yeah, and see, they, McChrystal would say to CIA, okay, I need you to bring these intel specialists. For example, people who know how to, to take hard drives and to take that information off those hard drives to put it into data integration systems. You know, we need your specialists in all of this. So CIA might say, well, what's in it for us, right? Well, what McChrystal would say is what's in it for you is access to intelligence, raw intelligence from al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is not simply in Iraq, but connected to the al-Qaeda network in different parts of the world, we're going to give you access to all that information. So it was kind of a let's make a deal. And they all made a deal on it. So then they had the kind of infrastructure in Iraq that could take that intelligence from the computers, from the phones, and so on, and put it into what are called data integration systems that then analysts could exploit. It was a heck of an effort. Perhaps also amazing was how quickly it was done. I think it's really very quick in the government anyway, but they got it done, this sort of change, relatively quickly for putting together all these different organizations. See, I think the reason for that is that in the case of JSOC, you have among your most creative parts of the military. And you had leaders like McChrystal and McRaven and who understood that if you faced a problem and your organization wasn't 
able to address that. You know, even though you you were supposedly the best CT organization in the world, then you had to change. The, one of the interesting things about JSOC is that it had a culture predating Iraq of learning. They were a learning organization. So they brought that to the table. So when things weren't working, you know, initially McChrystal told me, you know, the idea was we'll just double down and do things faster, harder. But they realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to cut it. So they had to change the organization, but they had a culture that allowed them to do that. So that's an interesting, I think an interesting part of the book is I build this model or framework of what a learning organization is. I base it on business and management literature, and then I tested it against how Task Force 714 adapted. And so there were a real reflection of a learning organization they understood the data problem and the need to get commercial systems that would help them exploit that data. How can those lessons be applied to other situations, either in warfare or in other organizational structures, not necessarily military? What lessons do we learn? Well, and, and you know, what's, what, I think what is really interesting is if we kind of fast forward. So after 2000, and this isn't in the book, but this is what I'm, I'm working on now, but it's connected directly. So once Iraq ended, the war against al-Qaeda and then ISIS, that war was no longer going to be conducted on the ground. It was by large forces. It was going to be conducted by these special units and from the air. Now, in order to collect information on Qaeda and ISIS and its main affiliates, the key platform for intelligence collection became the UAV. Now, we think about, you know, a lot of people think about UAVs in terms of their the rockets that they, they, they fly. But the UAVs, and, and, and this was actually Secretary of Defense Gates who understood this and built a huge UAV fleet. The UAV fleet began to collect enormous amounts of full motion video intelligence. They collected so much of it, you know, in Iraq, in Syria, in Somalia, in other places, that there was no ability to process and exploit it because you didn't have enough eyeballs to look at it, even though they had a lot of eyeballs looking at it. They had quite a large number of analysts that they had created, you know, developed starting in 2010, 11, 12. But the amount of full motion video that was being collected, yeah, it was impossible to manage it. You just couldn't do it. So the new innovation is the use of artificial intelligence systems to exploit that full motion video. And that's what I'm writing on now and, and, and I'm about to publish a monograph on it. The, the Department of Defense's first major effort to use artificial intelligence in war fighting operations that called Project Maven. And I've done research on Maven and going forward and looked at how Maven was being used. And that's the outgrowth of Task Force 714, that mentality of exploiting new technologies. Is it possible to predict what the future of warfare is going to look like? Yeah, I think that there are going to be other technologies, but artificial intelligence, machine learning, and autonomous systems are going to be at the center of it. 
And in my world, there now is a question of whether these developments of AI and, and machine learning and autonomous systems and so on, whether that is fostering a new revolution in warfighting. And there's a debate about this. But I think that it probably is going to have a huge impact on how we conduct war, because if you think about imagery with all of the commercial and then government satellites and other and UAVs and so on, just imagine that there's nothing in the world that will take place that you can't have imagery of. Now, that's a pretty bold statement but it is likely to be a reality. But you can't exploit that imagery without these technologies. And at the center of it is going to be artificial intelligence and machine learning. Now, artificial intelligence, that's just in war fighting. But artificial intelligence, of course, is going to play a big role in, in, other, in, in every aspect of the defense enterprise. So I, I kind of think that we're on the cusp of what some would call a, a revolution in military affairs. And some believe that, written and argue that we're in an AI arms race, an artificial intelligence arms race with China. So, you know, this is part of what, what you asked the question about. Is, is war really changing? And it, it looks like it. Are the biggest threats out there really large state agencies like China or with these type of technologies, these non-state groups that uh, might pose threats that are on par with, with large state agencies? See, I, I agree with you. But if we look at the way that Department of Defense, starting really with when General Mattis was the Secretary of Defense, actually maybe a little earlier, we had this change in who the threat is. So since 9-11, the threat was the non-state armed group, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, their affiliates. And that was certainly true up through 2016-17 because ISIS was such a sort of massive problem in Syria and Iraq. We never saw anything like it in terms of extremist armed groups able to recruit 30,000 fighters using information tools and just awesome. But the argument was that, especially as that came to a close, that we were shifting to what's called international security environment of peer competition between the United States, its allies, and China and Russia. And that has really driven the way the the Department of Defense looks at the security environment and who do you have to prepare for war against? And it's no longer the non-state armed group or the non-state actors, Al-Qaeda and so on. I mean, it's not that there's no attention being paid to that because there is, but it's a backwater compared to what it was. And now the focus is, you know, even before Ukraine was on China and Russia, and now it's going to be even more so. And, you know, and at the heart of this is going to be these new technologies, which are going to have a big impact on intelligence collection, you know, imagery, but also, you know, from those platforms, you can collect other kinds of signals and the exploitation of that for deterrence and war fighting. You worry about the threats you know, but it's more the threats you don't know. And one of the lessons from the book is being able to adapt and change in case those unknown threats arise. 
I think it's the answer, you know, and it's for organizations, big organizations like the Department of Defense, they tend to be glacial in change. So one of the lessons of 714, I think, is that if you can have an adaptive and innovative mindset, then when you are faced with crisis in practice, you know, things that you think you can do very well, all of a sudden aren't working, um, you're able to adapt and change to those and even to do it not in crisis but to get ahead of the curve you know there was a major commission on artificial intelligence headed by eric schmidt you know the google founder of google and that was a two-year effort i mean major study the final report is 800 and some pages but to boil it down i mean what, what eric schmidt and his his deputy or the number two guy there who was a former deputy secretary of defense Bob work. What they argue in there is that artificial intelligence is the single most important technology in terms of military competition. And while it's going to affect all aspects of the defense enterprise, it really is going to have a big, big impact on war and war decision-making and the extent to which you're able to exploit intelligence and develop the ability to make decisions faster than your adversaries. Well, it really is a fascinating book. Uh, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have any uh, final words regarding the book and changing landscape of warfare in the future. Well, I think I've said about all I can squeeze into our time, but the reality is that if we think about war historically, it's always changing. And when you don't get it right, you can really suffer the consequences. Now, just think about after World War One, the French decided that the defense was going to be superior. And so they built big defensive fortification called the Maginot Line. The Germans believed that offense was going to be superior, and they developed something called Blitzkrieg Warfare. France fell in six weeks, but the war was over within three. So what's that tell us? You know, war is always changing. The French got it wrong, and they were defeated in a matter of weeks. So that's the thing that, you know, I'm a student of war, and my study of war tells me that it, it's always changing, and you've got to be aware of that and study it and exploit those changes. You know, and it was technology then as well. The Germans understood the connection between the tank, the tactical aircraft, and the radio. Well, hit the Boy Scout motto, be prepared, and hopefully you come out on top. Yeah, that's a good motto. Close by saying we were just talking with Dr. Richard Schultz. He has penned the new book, Transforming U.S. Intelligence for Irregular War, Task Force 714 in Iraq. And Dr. Schultz, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's my pleasure. I hope this has been interesting for you. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.